everybody, welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. I am Justorian, and this is... Derek here, or Derek, and today we are lucky, fortunate, and honored to have Mr. Steven Erickson with us here today. Hello. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for taking the time to do this with us. Uh, it, it means a lot to us, um, and we're just so excited. Uh, I've been looking forward to this since uh, we started conversing back and forth with you. Cool. So um, I guess we've got some questions that we've kind of jotted down, um, not in any really particular order. Um, some of the things might deal with, we've read Gardens of the Moon, just finished Dead House Gates. Mm -hmm. uh, and then maybe just some overarching themes we've noticed, stuff like that. Uh, sure. And we've also read the prologue to Memories of Ice. Okay. So and, and so this is your first time through? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Neither of us know anything beyond what we've read. So. Uh, All right. Well, I'll bear that in mind then and, and <laughs> try to avoid spoilers if I can. I appreciate that. It's a. Uh, Man, it's been a ride for sure. Um, it's it's been a lot of fun reading this, and it's it's been a journey um, just to, I guess, contain ourselves to one chapter every week. Every every week, um, it's it's really yeah. Yeah. to read more than that at times. But uh, I, I know we're both enjoying it so far. I know, but one chapter a week. Um... If you're going to be staying for the whole 10 novels, that's that's a long, a long investment. We were told about four years. <laughs> right. Um, and I, I I know I wouldn't really say we were spoiled on anything, but we know somewhere along the way there's like a 150 page chapter. There is. And uh, I know I looked at in this book, I think the last chapter was 80 or 90 pages. It was pretty long. So. I don't know. We'll have to figure that out. We might be splitting those up. I don't know if we can tackle all that in one go. Right. Well, I guess it, it also depends on um, whether you're going through scene by scene and or line by line even. You know, that will take a long time for sure. We, we kind of do go by, I mean, section by section there. Yeah. We alternate between them and dissect what we can and give our thoughts and stuff. So uh, cool. it's really exciting to to get to talk to uh, you about the, the book series you've created here. Mm. Well, it's a co-created world. Bear that in mind. Um, Ian S. Lamont was the other uh, creator of this stuff. And we gamed a lot of it. Uh, at least we gamed the backstory. Um, what you saw in Gardens of the Moon um, from about the FET onwards was gamed. Um, the uh, the assassin war on the rooftops was kind of gamed. Um, Crocus was not a player player character. It was invented for for the story, for the fiction. And Dead House Gates, none of that was gamed. So um, most of what, yeah, most of the game stuff actually is it predates what happens in in, in the ten book series, and for Cam as well. Okay. Um... And I, I feel like we've both tried to kind of keep ourselves pure in a sense. So we haven't watched or listened to like any other interviews with you. So hopefully we're not repeating questions you've answered a, a million times before. But uh, 
Um, yeah, I guess you want to take the first one here? Yeah, sure. It definitely can. Go ahead. Um, we know very little of the history of your series as in its conception. We know it was at some point a screenplay and a tabletop game, but mm. where did the idea first manifest itself and how did it evolve from there? Um, it started. Hmm. I first met, um, Cam in Eslamont. Um, I come back from, uh, doing some archeology. span We're both archeologists and I was doing a, working on a project in Belize in Central America. Um, and, uh, when I came back from that, um, I knew that we were, um, there was going to be a, an excavation for the summer, uh, in a place called mud portage, the name of the site, uh, in Northwest Ontario. Um, just near, well, between Clearwater, well, Clearwater Bay, um, and I guess Shoal Lake. Um, so part of Lake of the Woods. And um, the first meeting we all had with the director and um, as he was assembling his crew was myself. Um, I came into the University of Winnipeg lab and, and shortly afterwards, Cam showed up. And that's where we met. And we hit it off pretty uh pretty quickly and when we got out onto the dig um we ended up sharing a tent and um some point during that project um it became clear well first that we both cam and i were reading science fiction and fantasy although curiously we were reading completely different science fiction and fantasy from each other uh, which is kind of interesting um but then he talked about and he was at the University of Manitoba and he was talking about uh, the game nights that he played. And I'd never heard of, well, I'd heard of, but I'd never played any role playing games at all. Um, so I guess by this point, I'm in my early 20s. Um, and he decided to, we kind of worked out that we would run a game um, on at the site on the dig. And that was a complete disaster. It was, um, advanced dungeons and dragons and uh pretty much all of us as players uh first time playing any kind of game like that and cam was doing his best to to sort of uh guide us into the process and we were hopeless we were absolutely hopeless um all the characters we rolled up were just um there was there was just no continuity no no cohesion amongst us at all um it didn't help that there were uh, various substances involved as well. So um, <laughs> the imbibing of certain substances. So it, I guess Cam at that point decided, okay, well, this is a, a write-off. And so um, we didn't uh, resume that. He sort of surrendered and, and gave up. And But at the same time, um, I was I had already entered a writing program at the University of Victoria, and I was writing contemporary fiction. Um, short stories for the most part and it turned out that cam was also interested in becoming a writer and so that sort of helps cement um our friendship to a large extent but also i mean if you if you're in this in the same tent for a whole summer uh, with somebody either by the end of it you're either good friends or you want to kill each other you know it's it's those are the only options and uh, fortunately we, we 
yeah, we just became very close friends. So eventually when I went back to uh, Victoria to resume my, my, my studies, Cam finished up at the U of M and the following year he uh, applied for the program and he got into the writing program. And then we became uh, roommates um, when he finally arrived in Victoria. And that's when the gaming started in earnest um, because it was primarily myself and Cam. Uh, initially there was a few others involved, but then they uh, dropped out or left or whatever. And so the dynamic was very strange. It was not, not your sort of classic group uh, gaming scenario. And since we were both in writing programs, uh, you know, our natural interest took us towards narrative. And um, so these games became narratives more than they became anything else. They weren't what used to be called Monty Hall campaigns where you were basically um, gathering up loot, you know, killing monsters and collecting loot and killing monsters and collecting loot and dungeon crawls and all that kind of stuff. We just moved away from that very quickly. Um, we also, this was Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, AD&D, and early on we dispensed with alignments completely. Um, and we found that the um, the magic system was uh, limiting us to a large extent. So while we gamed in it and we were building the Malazan world as we were doing so, uh, everything was set in that world. And we were eventually we were alternating uh, running campaigns within that world with multiple characters. Um, and then we switched, we discovered, well, GURPS arrived, uh, Steve Jackson's generic universal role-playing system. And that one just, that system just blew us away. Uh, it was so freewheeling. It allowed um, so much flexibility um, in the creation of characters that we just shifted over immediately into that. Um, and I think that's kind of where the magic system uh started to fall into place in terms of what we were going to do but the gaming was like i say it was narratives we, we would have whole sessions where we just had characters in conversation nobody pulled a sword nobody cast a spell and so that was kind of building the history uh of the malazan world um pretty much from scratch and uh when we decided that you know we wanted to maybe create a uh uh, a role-playing uh, manual for this kind of stuff. Um, it quickly became apparent to us that that was going to take a whole lot of work and we were both busy with other things. Um, but we'd already started co-writing screenplays, feature film screenplays. So we decided to give this a shot and that's where Gardens of the Moon um, was originally written as a screenplay. But living in Canada, we were quickly told, you know, by all the people who had their hands on the money that you know would be necessary for making films that you can't do it you can't do fantasy on film um and you know it was just it it, it, it shut us down pretty quickly we had two feature film scripts written um one of which was gardens of the moon the other one set in the malaysian world was uh, called black dog blues and um comedic uh fantasy and we were just shut down immediately so we just decided eventually to um split them up split the world up and start writing novels and that's what we did 
long answer for for your simple question. I don't know. I mean, that, I think we both knew there was some history there, so I don't know if it maybe was a simple question, but it was really cool to hear all that. Are you? Do you guys uh, role play role playing games? Um, I I very minimal. I've done a little bit of uh, Pathfinder with my brother mm-hmm. at one point, but I don't think I got any further than creating a character if I even got all that done. So right. No, I unfortunately never never made it into that world. Always been curious about it, but never really had, you know. Yeah. Are you are you um are you writers? No, I went to school for animation. So I'm animation, an okay. Artist, 3D modeler, mm-hmm. digital sculptor, that type of stuff. So mm-hmm. Yeah, not a writer, just uh, an enjoyer of enjoyer. Yeah, especially fantasy books. That's a pure fan, a pure fan. All right, cool. Very cool. Um, uh, our next question, and maybe uh, some of this you kind of answered, but I guess with like your education in anthropology, archaeology, how did that lend itself to writing um the books and just creating everything um it applied for both cam and myself in in the world building especially um quite often i mean and one of the things that sort of is is the underlying obsession uh, among archaeologists um is to observe a landscape any landscape and to then immediately begin to wonder what existed in this landscape uh, that we cannot see, that's underground, um, that's deep in our past. And then understanding that whatever was occurring back then has actually shaped the landscape we're looking at right now in quite subtle ways. So um, when you're building for a fictional world, you do need to sort of lay that foundational stuff um which may not become apparent in in the narrative you're you're writing the story you're telling but it's between the lines if you will or it's under the surface um so when we were creating this fantasy world uh, one of the first things we wanted to do was as anthropologists ask ourselves what would happen if um, magic had observable efficacy if it worked and then we had to define well who who gets to use the magic and we decided on a kind of a meritocracy for magic so that it's not it's not gender based um it's not um the sort of the, the sole property of particular birthrights or anything along those lines so in other words it's it's accessible um and if it's accessible to everyone, then how does that change the dynamics of social structure? And that's what we wanted to sort of play out with the, the role playing was, um, you know, what does change? Well, the first thing that changes is your hierarchy of power um, is no longer, can no longer be maintained on the basis of gender, for example. So when we're creating this world, we're basically we're removing patriarchy, but we're also removing matriarchy and removing any of those kind of 
gender-based hierarchies of power. Um, and so that's her, that frees up uh, men and women uh, within the world to basically do as they please. Um, and then we, we thought, well, okay, in terms of um, the way uh, historically um, the role of women in, uh, in, in ancient times quite often has been almost um, reduced to that of the, the baby factory because you had such high infant mortality um, that you know in order to sort of uh, maintain your line and, and or even increase the population um, the the women would have to produce a lot of children and that physically wears them out um, and they're not sort of uh, able to do other things but if magic includes healing and the healing is is fairly effective then a woman need only produce one child or two child two children with a high expectation that both will survive into adulthood right barring uh accidents barring war whatever but into adulthood um and that frees up their the life uh the lives of a woman to to do whatever to pursue anything they want um the the other aspect of having that kind of magic available to anyone as long as they work for it is that there is a almost a hidden leveling effect uh on the way people behave with one another so in other words uh the example i've used before is is in our world even a, a woman walking down a, a dark alley late at night um does so in fear right um in the melasm world in this world we created you know four guys stalking that woman um they might have good cause for fear because if her abilities in magic are to such an extent that she can tear them all to pieces with a gesture um that changes the whole dynamic of of how things are played out and so we were very much writing against um the assumed cliches even of epic fantasy where you had your eurocentric medieval style patriarchy is just transposed across into a secondary world and so it carries all the baggage uh, of our own history and our own sort of gender divides and all the rest uh we wanted to sort of write against that and move away from that um as quickly as possible and so we gained that out um to test it and by the time we were sort of at the point where we had gained it as best as we could uh we realized that okay we're we're now in a position to actually write about this stuff uh, as fiction but um you know in creating a world that that was was quite egalitarian um it, it was going to be something that either the readers would notice or they wouldn't because we weren't going to signpost it we weren't going to wave flags about it or anything like that that it's um it's a world without sexism so we just started writing that way and um curiously it took a few years before you know some reviewer actually actually noticed <laughs> that it's a world without sexism
even though we had, you know, women in power everywhere and in the military and, and you know, they're, they're present everywhere. Um, but it did take a while because I think there's the fantasy genre does carry that, that baggage in and of itself, um, because of the proclivity to, um, basically transpose a Eurocentric, uh, medieval style patriarchy into those worlds. Because once you do that, you've limited, you know, what women can do. And then you have authors like Jordan who, um, takes the magic and gender divides it. And so then that establishes access to power, but they're, they're different and diametrically opposed thematically. So, uh, it, it, that, that approach kind of highlights the conflict between between men and women. Um, we wanted to completely dismantle conflict uh, with the malaise and stuff. So it's a different approach. Does that help? Let's give you an answer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was a that was a great answer. Um, I guess it's one of those things where, like, as you're saying it, it makes sense. But one of those things that I've never like thought about as in depthly. Yeah, and, and it, it's supposed to be buried. It's supposed to be under the surface. It's subtextual um, because we're telling adventure stories. You know, we're we're basically recounting a history, a fictional history, um, and so there needs to be conflict and excitement and and characters and fun action and all the rest because that that's what our gaming was about as well, right? We needed to entertain each other with these games because we were otherwise bored rigid. So. So that's what I meant by not, you know, uh, signposting all of this stuff. It's all subtext. And the reader can absorb it, um, become conscious of it or not. It doesn't matter, right? It's just, it's working behind the scenes all the way through. Sure. Um, I guess, is there, I mean, you probably don't have like a specific number, but was there an amount, like how many sessions did it take to come up with, this very extravagant and illustrious world. And how do you translate from your campaigns to a book? Like, was there some type of documenting? Like, oh, we really like this. <clears throat> no, no. Um, that was the other thing, just to go back to answer you through this way To Archaeology involves a lot of studying of maps. Um, if you're going to find a site, um, basically you get a hold of an ordnance survey map uh, of, of the area you're going to excavate and then you start thinking in terms of contours elevations um uh hydrology like water dynamics all that kind of stuff on, on shaping the landscape uh, shaping the geography um so as archaeologists yeah we all love maps i mean we pour over maps all, all the textbooks in anthropology and archaeology are filled with maps and i I absolutely adored that stuff. So when we started gaming, I drew maps and um, I wanted to make the maps as kind of uh, geologically or geo geomorphologically um, accurate as possible. Um, so once you do that, you have to then think in terms of uh, kind of epoch spanning geological events that, that relate to uh coastlines drainage of water um how much ice how much water is locked up in ice how much isn't um what happens when that changes and, and your all your coastline uh floods 
which is, of course, what we're experiencing right now in the real world. But all of these things will have a, a, a dynamic impact um, on the environment. And, and then when you start sort of peopling that landscape, um, as anthropologists, we know, you know that quite often it is the, the environment that actually dictates the nature of the culture uh, that arises in it. And the obvious thing would be if you live on the coast, you're likely to be uh, maritime, if you will. You're likely to be sort of uh, your subsistence base is coming from the sea, um, which puts you, you know, eventually on boats out into the water. And and then that's that's a, a culture that that's kind of outwardly focused. Um, it, it's geared to what's beyond the horizon. It's geared to contact. And then that contact then triggers things like trade. And with trade, you've got sudden exchange of items and art, uh, you know, um, resources, uh, which then elevate you know both sides of the exchange. Um, and once that starts happening, you get an exchange of ideas, and so the cultures then sort of uh, thrive under those conditions. Conversely, uh, an isolated uh culture arising girdled by mountains uh with very little contact from the outside world is going to it's going to emerge differently and it may well be an inward looking culture um and that the, the dynamics of that change as well um quite often in those places um some very strange practices and and rituals and habits um end up falling into place because there's nothing to actually from the outside you know to 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 compare with uh for the people living there so all of these things are sort of all playing into you know how you build your cultures um in 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 the world you're creating and then of course you go to history and you can you can sort of be able to map out a lot of the uh cultures in contact and cultures in, in conflict and so uh, those are other aspects, but I've actually now forgotten your question. So if you could repeat it, it's all good. I was just curious uh, how many gaming sessions. Oh, how many gaming sessions? Yeah. Um, we were fanatical. We were absolutely fanatical. Um, I, I mean, we're both writing uh, fiction for for the the creative writing program we were in. Um, but both of us were actually. Uh, pretty fast writers. So we, we could get our, you know, I think it was three stories per term. We have to be put through the workshop. Um, I could wrap up, I could wrap out a story in, in three or four nights of writing. And that gave me a lot of free time and same for Cam, um, lots of free time. The only other thing I was doing was fencing at the time. Oh, cool. So, um, yeah, we fanatically gamed. And because we were both um, taking on the, the role of master, a dungeon master, a games master, um, a role within the actual playing of the games, um, we could almost do it every night. <clears throat> because one night it would be Cam running the game, the next night it would be me running the game, the next night it would be Cam running the game, the next night it would be me. And we could go like four or five hours. Um, for a gaming session and um so yeah we gamed a lot we gamed a lot neither of us was married yet 
So, you know, there was nobody else to sort of tell us to get off our asses and go do something. <laughs> um, we we're young, right? So, and we we're just having a blast with this gaming stuff. And it was just building that world um, layer by layer, uh, event by event. Cam is now writing some of that stuff um, as Origins of the Empire. Um, and so I am seeing in a lot of that stuff, um, some of our gaming stuff. So that's pretty cool. That is really cool. I know at some point we'll get to those books too. Um, yeah. Esselmont's books, but. Uh, I know we planned on doing it uh, in publication order. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So after after Midnight Tides, I believe we were going to go to Night of Knives. Um, and then wherever the. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Wherever the publication. We were told not to do it chronologically. I know that within the Malazan universe, there's a hot debate upon which reading order to do. Um, but we just decided to do it publication order. So I think I think after we're done with Memories of Ice in the next 10 months, uh, <laughs> we'll we'll get to the um, the first of your novellas. So, well, yeah, I suppose the question is, um, do you want to read for real world historical authenticity? Then you do, you read it on the basis of publication order. Um, but that also presumes that Cam and I are not in conversation with each other, you know, or weren't in conversation with each other throughout the writing um, of the books because The only things that really created the publication order was that uh, it took Cam, because uh, he was doing other jobs, he was working uh, various places in the world, uh, longer to to get the first book published. Um, and the first book wasn't, well, the first book he wrote was Return of the Crimson Guard. It was not uh, Night of Knives. So that slight delay was something Cam and I never intended. Um, when I was writing Gardens of the Moon, he was writing Return of the Crimson Guard. Uh, so in, in the real world. And so uh, we were in, in dialogue at that point. But, you know, Return of the Crimson Guard, um, it took me eight years to find a publisher for Gardens. Uh, in that time, uh, Cam was teaching in Thailand, was teaching in, um, had gone to university at University of uh Minnesota, actually, um, and then ended up up uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, that university uh, for his master's. Um, so he was he was busy. He was busy doing other stuff. Um, spent time in Japan as well. Um, and so when I finally got uh, Gardens of the Moon published, you know it it had already been sitting around, you know, for, with me for eight years. Um, and he had a version of Crimson of the Guard, presumably sitting around with him as well, but not going anywhere. So it's, it was more the vagaries of the publishing industry um, and our timing that actually produced the chronological uh, order of publication. It had nothing, actually, it was no deliberate intention on, on the part of Cam and myself. So if you want that authenticity of publication order, that's fine. I mean, it makes sense. Um, 
Cam and I were in conversation uh, about a lot of this stuff. But in terms of the shared history, that was mapped out a long time ago, um, long before the publications of the books. So you could actually take a look at, and break it down in terms of the timeline involved and, and read the series that way. I mean, you can take it either way, right? Um, both of them make sense uh, in another, you know, in another own. Yeah. I think we're, we're both excited to be in this for the long haul and, and, and getting through this one book at a time. And, uh, so I'd just, I, I don't know where I'm really going with that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I just, we're excited to see everything that's out there. Um, yeah. but I, I think we feel like publication order makes the most sense for us. Yeah. 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 It's fine. And night of knives is, is great fun anyways. So, um, it's a kind of, um, it's a prequel uh, when you get to it, um, and it's a fun prequel. It's it's really quite cool. Yeah, I know that uh, already gone through two of two of the books of the Fallen. It's I know that there's going to be things that I want to go back and reread when this is mm -hmm. all done, whenever this venture is over. Eventually, I would like to go through the series at, at a little bit more of a steadier pace than once a week yeah once yeah. a week yeah so uh I, I, at that point i had planned on maybe reading it in more of a chronological is probably not the right word but just more more events that kind of line up with each other sort of sort of with your own momentum with natural momentum of your reading yeah 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 because you know you may want to read three chapters in a week you may want to read half the novel in a week right um it just depends on uh sort of where you're at and how much time you've got um so when you artificially impose you know one chapter a week that can slow up your that can almost derail the momentum so um yeah for what it's worth i advise you guys to be as more as flexible as possible in how many chapters you read rather than setting a rule because some chapters are short and some are brutally long so <laughs> I think just with what we each have going on in our own lives and uh, yeah, it's, a, it's so far, it's been a pretty good pace and good. gives good. us a chance to reread it. And uh, Justin does a great job on picking up on a lot of things that I don't. Um, and so it's a lot. So, of so you reread the chapter. I probably reread the chapter at least two times. And then wow. okay. we go through and we summarize like our sections and it's not it's not quite a synopsis, but it's not quite a, a recreating of everything that was was written. Um, a very mm -hmm. depth summary. So I pick up a lot when I'm writing the sections that I have to, I guess, summarize. So yeah, cool, very cool. Uh, like Riga in the first book, uh, from that first chapter, I'm like, this lady is stuck in this head. And it wasn't yeah. until the end of the book where I got that payoff. And the whole time I'm doubting myself. And But I knew in my gut it was the right thing. So, yeah. Yeah, good call. Good call. Lots of people missed that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was not on board with it. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's the other issue is that, you know, I was, I learned as a short story writer. And 
Um, I didn't, I didn't make any conscious alterations when I started to write novels. I just treated them as very long, short stories. But they weren't even very long short stories. I mean, the chapters themselves felt like short stories. And sometimes the sections within the chapters were written as if they were short stories. So one of the things with short stories is um, there's no room for extraneous uh, material. Everything needs to actually um, carry additional weight. Um, so there needs to be um, that subtext has to be uh, at work at all times and in a sense um it then imposes an unrealistic expectation on the reader because you know and, I, and i'm a reader too right so when i read fan when i read novels um i probably approach it approach them differently than i would reading a short story because when you read a short story, at least I, when I read a short story, I'm aware that uh, of that extra freight that all of the the language is carrying, um, and that's kind of what I learned on. And so, you know, writing the chapters uh, in these novels as short stories, there is a kind of almost an unrealistic expectation that the reader is going to come to it. Um, the same way they would come to reading a short story and so they would pay attention uh you know that i'm not just sort of carelessly dropping lines um there's stuff stuffed in there everywhere and if you pay attention and that's why i think the rereads uh, have proved so rewarding for so many people is that they start catching those stuff you know all of that stuff and it, it was just it's the nature of my writing process um and I've been doing it for so long now that uh, I don't think I could do any other way. It's very cool to hear. I, I mean, we've been doing this for about a year and a half now, and and I feel like we probably couldn't do it a different way than what we're doing either. So I think we can relate to that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. There may be a kind of a, an education process going on in terms of, uh, because of the particular way that I was writing this stuff as if they were short stories. Um, once the reader gets, you know, once it clicks in the reader's head, um, then they have no issues with it and, and they can just ride with it and, and have fun. Um, but if your expectation is sort of a, a more leisurely languid, um, sprawling narrative, then yeah, yeah. You, you may be caught a wrong footed uh, by this stuff. And if you end up fighting it, then you're not going to like it. So I don't think either of us have felt that way. I mean, we both heard Good. that, you know, it's a challenging series to read. And I mean, at least through two books, I don't think either of us feel that way or feel intimidated in in that Good. regard. It's it's been I mean, yeah, it's it's huge and it's a lot of fun, but it's it's been pretty natural, I think. I mean, Good. going through the first book um the, you know definitely there were some questions but it just became one of this thing this thing for me that i just I trusted the process you know i trusted mm. that in all good time things would be revealed and um i'm actually really digging the the, the format of the way these books are so yeah cool well good i'm glad i'm glad um, 
our next question here is probably a little bit more book focused, but uh, there's, especially in Deadhouse Gates, there is uh, some pretty intense emotional dialogue. Um, a couple of my favorites, insufficient was one of my favorite lines. Um, Children are dying seems to be a very popular one. Another one of my favorites, armor can hide anything until the moment it falls away, even a child, mm. especially a child. Um, you know, it's, it's some pretty heavy writing. Um, what was it like writing that? I mean, was there a process to that? Did it just come naturally to you? Or did you have to put a lot of thought into how you wanted to word things? Um, <clears throat> it's one of those weird things about writing. On the one hand, the craft of writing is the thing that can be taught, right? It's um, so all of the the terms you, you would use to discuss or describe narrative structure, um, and I'm sure you've heard all these um, setting, dialogue, uh, exposition, um, pace, sentence structure, sentence rhythm um let's see what else use of symbols uh denotation versus connotation in terms of your word choice diction levels um uh let's see what else um well, well there's a few others anyways psychic distance that kind of stuff so you learn those things by being shown examples um uh a point of view would be another one uh, past tense present tense um and narrative uh, narrator as well narrative voice um so you're you know as a student anyways um i'd be shown examples of these things and i would study them i would study how these uh writers made use uh of those various elements uh on the understanding that there is no you know there was no original rule book on this kind of stuff so the stuff that survives uh, and has survived through time um in in the writing of fiction survived for a good reason which means it serves a particular function that satisfies an audience in some fashion or another so if you think of consistency of point of view uh, you move into a character's head and then you can decide whether is the reader going to be able to actually see the thoughts that the character has or is the reader only going to hear what the character says and is the reader going to only see the actions that the character does on the page um and so then you're dealing with questions of reliability of narration um because quite often what a character may think could be the complete opposite of what a character says right so so you have to make all those decisions. Um, and early on with this stuff, I think probably because Cam and I were gaming multiple characters, we would slip into the persona of those characters. And so then you transpose that into fiction, you're looking at third person, uh, limited omniscient or third person omniscient narration, which means that you've got you slipped into into the skin of that character you're walking as that character um and if you want uh you can on occasion sort of pull back the lens and or or the veil 
and reveal the internal monologue of that character. And that's um, structurally what I did there in terms of visual is that's the italicized stuff, right? So when Felicin is having these thoughts, uh, that's her internal monologue and it's italicized. Um, and what I was certainly discovering fairly quickly with characters like that, who is a very uh, wounded character um, and a very vulnerable character, is that what she says versus what she thinks are diametrically opposed, right? Um, and so once you sort of, you discover that this is, you know, the notion of the spoken word as a weapon, uh, but a weapon of self-defense, um, then that changes what's said and what isn't said. And um, so if the, the nature of the narration of the entire Malazan Book of the Fall was going to be moving from particular third-person character points of view, um, sometimes internal, with internal, and sometimes not, um, and then creating all these these individual experiences, and then you know having the conflict and and having them interact with each other, then that's a particular type of storytelling. Um, so this is not a story where you stick with one character um, for the entire 10 books, right? With their point of view and their life experience, um, which we felt was probably going to be impossible for the narrative, the, the, the history that we were going to be uh, writing about. And our purpose for writing that history was also um, running against the idea of any single character being so central um, to these forces of history um, that you don't you don't move you don't ever move away from them. So uh, that is the craft stuff and sort of decision making processes um, that help sort of direct you direct the writer into how they're going to structure their story. Now the stuff that can't be taught is is what you're doing with language. Um, so in other words, you can read um, and, and uh, you know, when I, when, I when I teach writing courses, I mean, the first thing I have to say to, to the students is, is yeah, read, just read, read everything you can possibly get your hands on. Um, and the notion that you can become a fiction writer having not read anything is I mean, it, it's almost impossible. I, I can't even conceive it. Uh, ironically, when I'm hearing a lot of uh, beginning uh, creative writing students will come in and say in the class that they don't read, in which case, what are they doing there, right? So you learn by reading. Um, and you learn how other writers do things. and and, and But also you learn where they mess up. And because um, we all mess up. And sometimes the things work and sometimes they don't. And then you have to ask yourself, well, why didn't it work for me? Or why didn't it work? Um, and, and so all of that is a learning process. And as you read, you build your own uh, vocabulary. So your, your diction levels go up. So I, I mean, I, I made a point of reading really complicated books um, with high diction levels. Because uh, I, I, I love words. I love language. Um, and that kind of helped in 
the creative process uh, when you're putting together a sentence. Um, you want to be able to reach into that toolbox and find the right, right word, the perfect word for that for that sentiment or that emotion or whatever. Um, but at some point, that stuff becomes kind of second nature, and it just it just sort of it flows. And sometimes it's as if you're no longer in control. Um, you're just the character has has picked up that story, um, and something about the voice has just slipped into something that is absolutely and feels authentic and natural, and you just go with it. Uh, and and the rhythms are built in. Um, and that's where you may find sort of poetic phrasing or, or the lyrical aspects of things. Um, it just, it just emerges organically. Um, but I think it emerges because you have a, the writer has a, a foundation in the, in the craft elements, right? Once you get all those rules, once you, once you get an understanding of them, that frees, um, the creativity to let loose and cut loose does that make sense yeah that was amazing <laughs> yeah, that was like awesome <laughs> hanging on every word here okay um i guess my next question is is more specific to uh, a specific element in dead house gates with the mm -hmm. den of the rag stopper which we know is carthron crust um we put that together good nice yeah. one yeah. Most people never never did. Yeah, he caught it. He, I didn't. I thought it was quick, Ben. But I'm just kidding. Mm. An inside <laughs> joke. Um, uh, Derek was just like, I could have swore that the, the the first mate called him Carther, and I for some reason read it as Carter, um, mm. and I had to go back, and he was just like, Yeah, it must be Carther on crust, and and I'm like, You're you're right. It has to be him. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, outside of that tangent, uh, the captain of the rig stopper, uh, his mirror not reflecting uh, was really abstract to me. And the way that I interpreted that scene was obviously he was under some type of hypnotism from Pearl slash uh, what was what was Pearl's name alias? I already forgot. Salka land. Salka land. Thank you. Um, obviously, under some type of mind control or hypnotism, um, and I was interpreting that scene as the captain saying his mirror was not reflecting to Kalam was his way of telling Kalam that things were not as they seem, that the reflection, mm -hmm. the reflection is not what it appears to be. I guess is mm -hmm. that more or less the right track, or is there any more elaborate? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember the specifics of the scene, but as you describe it, that's probably how I I I I would have done it. Um, early on, you realize that fantasy is it's the the genre for making taking a metaphor and making it real, because you have that fantastical element that you can create. Pretty much anything you want uh, as long as you describe it clearly and and justify its existence within that world um but occasionally uh as a as an author and a narrator you can you can mess around with that you can make the metaphor not only real um for the reader 
you can make it for the actual characters within the story. And that's sort of a, that second diegetic level. So yeah, basically, uh, crust is, as being constrained in what he can say and what he can do. So in order to deliver the message, he has to, to quick bet or to Kalam, he has to do it in an underhanded fashion, in an indirect fashion. And so that's where the mirror comes in. Um, I mean, thinking on it now that that's kind of what makes sense. I could be completely wrong. Maybe I was doing something else back then, but we are talking uh, 2000, 2000 AD. So it's been a long time. 2001? The year 2000. 2000 AD. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> That's yeah. when I wrote it. Fair enough. Sorry, I thought you said 18. Um, no, no, no. Bad speakers. No. <laughs> I would have been, what did we, yeah, we were in eighth grade. Yeah, we were, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, long time ago. You want to take these next couple of your questions? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Can I ask where you came up with the present or the premise of the headless horseman or not horseman, headless horseman, and just that whole scene within the Solana, uh, like where in the depths of your mind did you come up with such an amazing scene? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> it may have been gained. Um, we did. We were doing some curious things with with various ships um but i so i cannot recall uh, i could ask cam but it may have been gamed um although no it wouldn't have been oh maybe it was but much later actually um ended up i mean when cam when cam sort of headed off to his do his thing and i was heading off to the master's uh program in in, in the states in iowa um the following summers and when i eventually moved back to winnipeg um i was gaming with a group of people a bunch of friends um and some of the characters well the characters they played or you, you haven't met yet but you're going to uh they're in the books and um I th i'm thinking now that one of the characters um his storyline may actually have involved the Salanda. Um, in which case I came up with it for, for a game, for a campaign. Um, and it may have been as simple as, well, this is going to really remove the romance from the whole situation, but how, how can you get a ship that has, you know, um, perpetual, uh, means of locomotion that you don't have to worry about you don't have to feed it you know what to do you don't have to feed you don't have to put gas into the tank you know it's just it just works um but it certainly got you know once it's there you build it into the world you build it into the history um and you will you will come at that story of the salanda from the opposite direction soon well not soon but you will eventually it's we've been we've been told it comes back a time or two yeah. to yeah. that two separate in, like two other separate incidents yeah two, two at least two separate incidences and they all converge to to sort of explain what you're looking at see i think that notion of just that there are two other 
perspectives of that particular event just makes it all the more giddy for me. Um, because like <clears throat> as a visual person, like I could just imagine this whole scene in my head and like all I want to do is just draw it, model it, and just make it look cool like the way I see it in my mind. But I can't do that yet because if I look things up, then I end up spoiling things. Mm. So, yeah. 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 And of course it's it's the thing that as the writer, it it, it I mean, that's what entertains me is that I'm writing this scene from a very specific, limited point of view. Um, so the the reactions and the perceptions uh, are constrained by those points of view. And it's in a particular point in time where the events that created that scenario that they arrive on um, happened sometime in the past. And then I knew that I was going to loop around with different sets of characters and bring us straight to that moment. Um, so it's it's kind of going back in the past that, that we're going to keep revisiting the same scenes or, or the same uh, scenario. And for me, that that's great fun, right? That the writer has to entertain himself somehow, right? So sure. Yeah, makes total sense. Uh, yeah, I, thank you for answering that. Um, mm. And my other question is, uh, as far as the major battles in Dead House Gates, uh, did you sketch out their positions or how did you construct the overall series of events that took place? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, in my first degree, I, I, I took two minors um, in addition to the major. And that was uh, history and, and classics. And one of my one of my lifelong interests um, in fact, I took this with me on digs all over the place. I like to uh, to play uh, board top war games. Um, and one of the the most amazing um, systems that was ever created, to my mind, for World War II um, simulation uh, of uh, squad level and tank individual tank level battles, uh, is a system. That was done by ASL, I think they were called, and it was called Squad Leader. And uh, if you Google that, I mean, they came in box sets and they had maps and they had maps and they had maps. And uh, complex, but actually once you once you sort of internalize it, a uh, very logical um, rule, rule, rule basis. And so I absolutely loved um, uh, war games on, on on tabletop and so uh and with my with my studies i was studying a lot of military campaigns um quite often it's the military campaigns like tacitus and stuff caesar that survive uh, so we get to look at that stuff um and it's also the military campaigns that are talked about so you think of uh historians accompanying uh, Alexander uh, the Great, you know, in his in his march uh, all the way to India. Um, and you might recognize, if you knew about that, the role of, of Duiker, uh with Coltane, right? So we've got historical inspirations for a lot of these scenarios. Um, so uh yeah i would um i would map these things out uh, I, would, I would map out the battles 
um, bearing in mind that you know things like munitions uh, can have a profound effect um, on what could otherwise be a traditional Iron Age or Bronze Age battle. Um, munitions change everything. But curiously, the Romans had their own versions. And yeah, they were, you know, uh, equally devastating um, upon the enemy. So there's a lot you can draw and cull from history, um, or at least that I did, that uh, helped inform um, the campaigns. That's, that's amazing. Again, one of those things where, like, I would read these things. And so, like, this is this was part of the... The series that like I struggled with, and even in other fantasy series that I've read, um, battle scenes always eluded me for some reason. Um, but I think it was because I wasn't rereading the chapters, and so it just kind of got to be one of these things where I would. Um, there's a guy who I can't forget. I forget the YouTuber, but he has mapped out kind of the yeah. within Dead House. Um, and after watching that and like seeing the formations with like the animated stuff, it just, it brought an understanding to the battle scenes much more visually to my mind. So, uh, yeah, he did a great job. And if you were to go onto YouTube and, um, Google or on, do a search on YouTube regarding, um, uh, historical campaigns, um, or historical battles, you'll find all kinds of historians are doing that very thing. And they're using things like the Total War um, game engine to help animate um, the battles. But even in textbooks, that's kind of how battles are drawn out uh, for, the, for the students studying that kind of stuff. Um, and, and that was extremely useful because, you know, that's kind of where it's interesting because I, I, Graceless Passion, I think, is the, is the guy who did it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's using this almost the same, um, the same iconography as I would have done on the original version because it's what historians, uh, military historians will use. It's what military commanders use um, on their battle maps. So, um, yeah, it was really fun to watch uh, the recreation of that stuff. It's really good. And yeah, he nailed it. It was it was super helpful for me. Um, yeah. The other the other question that I had, um, I think I have two more. So, uh, in Gardens of the Moon during the Fet, each of the major characters are wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. I felt like each mask represented them in some way, shape, or form. Um, was that intentional? And if mm -hmm. so, the only one that I couldn't make sense of was Krupp, who was wearing a cherub mask. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. yes. was there intent behind the masks and what, what oh absolutely uh, and the great thing was is that was all game um cam was running that game and so the characters i had rolled up um were krupp um animator rake uh i was the first character i ever rolled up um so krupp and rake uh relic nom um I think those were the main characters who who played a fundamental role um in the fet uh from from the point of view of characters i rolled up so um 
NPC characters for people like Baruch um, and various other, you know. Uh, actually, now that I think about I don't even know if in the game, no, in the game we didn't have the Malazan squad present. I don't think. I'd have to ask Cam, but I don't think so. Maybe we did. We did for the script. I wonder if we did for the game. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, it was all, um, it was, I mean, we were actually just amusing ourselves with the masks, right? I mean, it, it was going to be a fet, so you get the masks. Right. So, okay, I've been thinking, okay, well, what kind of mask is Rake going to have? Well, I know, you know, black dragon mask, right. nothing, nothing subtle there, right? No. <laughs> um, no, I thought that was great fun and Cam, you know, I mean, we did a lot of stuff in the gaming intended to make the other person laugh. So there was a comedic element that was always present. Um, and for me, um, I had crop selected cherubs mask because I got this, uh, you're, you're visually inclined, right? So I had the same thing. I'm very visually inclined. I had this picture of this, this round sort of pinky cherub mask with, with, um pastry you know smeared all over the mouth right because you know as soon as that popped into my head yeah he's got to have a cherub mask um because crop is everything about deception um he's everything about presenting a particular persona that is um intended to disarm uh, other people and that's how he works right yeah um I actually have an interesting Krupp theory. Um, mm -hmm. It's probably not a hundred percent right or any shape of the way right. But is it is it possible that he, in order to enter his dreamlike state, has to get so lethargically full of food that he passes out? <laughs> I hadn't thought in those terms. Um always seems but, like before he dreams he after he wakes up he's next to a plate of food that he's demolished or yeah yeah you know like he he just always has to there is that i mean yeah there, there's so much um subtext stuff going on uh at play with 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 krupp and the narration um that's built around him um there's metatextual stuff going on there's metafictional stuff going on everywhere um so if you think of his loquaciousness um his loquaciousness uh, his his tendency to uh narratize you know all of these things are are em emblematic if you will of my love of language right i absolutely i'm in love with language and so Krupp is my my um, my gateway drug uh, in, in the Malazan world um, to just expound on language and have fun with language and um, to play with you know atrocious puns and and, and even uh, and everything is sort of signposted in the sense that the the first scene with Krupp is in his dream um, and this is you know in this dream he has. Um, he has separated out and personified all the aspects of his nature right mm -hmm. um so you've got you've got 
I think pride and envy and, you know, you've got all, and they're all, you know, individuals now who've been, who are hanging from trees, basically, as he sacrifices one after another, uh, in the interest of the thing that is, is also built into Krupp, which the cherub is, I guess, the most obvious, um, symbol indicating, which is, uh, an immense overriding love of people and love for life and love in the world um that is there and that is that is built into krupp as a character um and it's a reflection of uh, in many respects of uh, you know my own my own feelings in that regard so krupp is intended as a celebration but um he's also one that gets under people's skin pretty quickly and can drive readers crazy um but hey that's that's the nature right it's the nature of humanity I personally love krupp's mannerisms i think he's absolutely hilarious um granted i, I would have to go back a lot of it is because we read that what 10 months ago so but well i mean you're in memories of ice now you just started prologue yep yeah well Krupp's not far off. So. Yes, yes. I'm excited to get back to that cast. You know, mm -hmm. it's, weird, it's weird to go from Gardens of the Moon and then you get a whole new set of characters in Dead House Gates and then to like go back and uh, be reunited with the characters that you first began this journey with. Um, yeah, and I don't think I don't think it's it's a huge spoiler, but Midnight or Memories of Ice picks up where Gardens left off. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So it's an it's a sequence of events that run parallel to um, the events of Deadhouse Gates. I'm excited. I'm excited for that because, like, I really want, and whether it, it happens or not, I guess time will tell. But I'm really excited to hear the other side of the Trigali Trade Guild uh, with Trigali Trade Guild. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and just that that was so mind-blowing as well i just i loved the whole concept of the giant carriages and like these weird little god what were they erp and uh we just oh yeah yeah you know uh those boak rala looking things so the vile duiker we all have our speculations on what's happening there. Mm. Um, yeah uh, the Trigal Trade Guild I rolled up for a campaign, uh, and and the group I was uh, running, um, I think they played characters um, who had signed on to the, at one point, anyways, who signed on to Trigal Trade Guild. And it's great fun because it's it's basically you're crashing through one sort of reality after another, um, and it's I don't know if you've ever heard of a game called Call of, Call of Cthulhu. I've heard of it. It was a role-playing game. Yeah, it's been around for a long time. And one of the amusing aspects of the game is the longer your character plays, the more insane they become. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you see things that could drive you to madness, right? So you have to take, you do dice rolls to see how much sanity you've lost having seen and witnessed something. And so the Trigal Trade Guild is very similar in that respect, that you know, the more they go through, um, the more afraid their sanity becomes. And it becomes a lot of fun to role play that kind of stuff, for sure. 
I'm excited to read that then. <laughs> um, my last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moby was a very interesting character throughout Dead House Gates and even Gardens of the Moon. Um, mm. So when Absalar reveals that Crocus, that he was indeed, that Moby is indeed a demon, uh, was this something that we missed between the first and the second book? Or does Moby's story potentially come back into place at some point throughout the series? Uh, I don't think it. I don't think it comes back in, into play. I think he's he's put in his his allotted position um, in uh, Tremolor in the Azath House, but his presence as, um, if you will, a soul-taking demon, uh, that is that's authentic to the game. Um, that Cam ran in Darujistan, where Baruch was uh, an NPC, and Baruch, uh, I guess, um, of, was of sufficient magical ability um, to have servants who were not as they seemed. Uh, there was more to them. So, um, and then I think for the storyline, uh, I, I can't remember if Mammoth is the one who has Moby. I think so. So probably we switched it over to Mammoth, uh, the uncle, Crocus's yep. uncle. But I think originally in the game, it was probably, if it was there, uh, it would have been Baruch's. But we just, you know, uh, for fictional purposes, for story purposes, it made more sense that it was Mammoth's. But the idea of um, a small... Bokarala or, or winged ape um, or variation thereof uh, as being a soul-taken demon. And here's a story I don't think I've told to anyone. Um, that was one of the very first um, games I ran because uh, Cam was running all of them before I felt comfortable enough to try to run a game. And when I did that, the character that Cam rolled up is the character who would become Kelenved, the emperor. And my NPC was Dancer. Um, and the first game I ran was on the continent of Quantali, which becomes the empire at a later point. Um, just outside the city of Li Heng. And it was a, a a campaign or, or the story begins with uh, Kellenbad, who for the game purposes, Cam had called Dr. Wu. And um, well, and it was because I think at the time we were listening to a lot of Steely Dan. So sure. Dr. Wu is one of the, the great songs of Steely Dan. So he became, he was Dr. Wu. And I think the first campaign I ran is, yeah, they break into a, uh, a keep of some kind, uh, abandoned keep, and they run up against uh, what appears to be a haunting, uh, monstrous haunting, um, which is chasing them all around, all around inside the keep in the castle. And um, the joke to it was was that all it was was um, a wizard's familiar. But the wizard had died of old age, so the, the familiar was just hanging around, and it was an illusionist as well. Um, so it had all these abilities. 
so it was just it was just yanking their chain everywhere right just for fun and so Moby is kind of a reflection it, Cam would have recognized Moby immediately when he was reading the first drafts of Gardens of the Moon he would have known oh I know where that one comes from because that one comes from the first game he ran in Lee Hengsty and he would have been right so we did a lot of writing where there were inside jokes passing back and forth uh in our stuff that sounds awesome that's amazing we our own little inside joke is that uh someone called out that i think everybody is quick ben so that's just been <laughs> the running joke um like poost i somehow got on this tangent that poost is quick ben oh it's girl pust yeah it's girl pust. yeah pust, thank you yeah um just based on something fiddler said uh yeah but no quick ben's very busy at this time as you discover in memories of ice I feel like we got kind of a, a very small preview to that um, when Clam reached out to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The stone. The stone, yeah. 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 Which was really cool. Um, yeah, I guess I we've got a few more questions. I don't know how much sure. time you're willing to No, do no, that. go ahead. Um, yeah, we're good. I, I felt like maybe there was some symbolism uh, at the end of Dead House Gates, where uh, Stormy and company find the cattle dog and the little dog, mm -hmm. Hoganese uh, lapdog, uh, and it took a couple times of me reading it before I it came to me. But was there intended symbolism there? I felt like you know this this cattle dog must. I felt like was alluding to Coltane, you know, and he's carrying the smaller dog, which I felt like were the refugees and sure, didn't sure. everybody, but got a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, in many respects, yes. And of course, you know, the entire journey is called the chain of dogs. Um, so the dog motif, uh, appears again and again, um, throughout that narrative. Um, but there was an additional purpose to it. Um, <clears throat> At some point, I think in the writing of when I sort of imagine the closing scenes of Deadhouse Gates, um, it came to me that I wasn't I wasn't going to be writing fantasy with tragic elements. I was going to write tragedies with fantastic elements or fantasy elements. So that kind of flipped the focus, um, and one of the things that inspired me to start writing tragedies is it seems to even back in 1999 or 19 early 90s um it's a it's a particular narrative form that has um dropped off the radar um sometimes you'll see in film you may see tragic comedy um but out and out tragedies are extremely rare um they seem it seems to be the one form that that um and i can see i'm going to understand why um if you are basing your your storytelling your filmmaking your television series on achieving a feel-good sensation in the audience by the end of it then tragedies won't work right and yet you think of some of the greatest films we've we've seen 
uh, or have been made of late, think of Saving Private Ryan. I mean, that's a tragedy. Um, Schindler's List, I guess, would be a tragedy. So some of the great films recognized that uh, Aristotle was right, that there was something fundamentally valuable in writing tragedies. So, um, and one of the reasons is is catharsis. Uh, this is what Aristotle talked about anyways, uh, that there is an emotional release um, in having followed the, almost the rituals of drama uh, that lead to um, a kind of expression of the human condition's ultimate end, which is death. And so tragedy and, and the choices that a character and a person makes that then narrows their options as they pass through time um, to a certain point. And to be in an audience and to witness that is to be carried along that emotional ride without paying the physical price, if you will, or the personal price. So you're kind of a stand-in um, and you get to experience all these things, but not, um, not the harsh, brutal reality of it. So you get this experience of uh, all of these emotions and then a release because the release is that kind of subconscious and conscious understanding that this was all a show. This was all a play. This was all just a story. Um, and I can get up and I can, I can walk home to my, you know, my partner and, and my children or whatever. So catharsis as uh, a valuable um, emotional uh, process that art can can carry us through, uh, particularly tragedy. So I knew that when I got to the end of Deadhouse Gates, that the tragedy is kind of ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. <clears throat> and so the stuff that happens there is is on an epic scale in terms of the tragic element. And when I got through that, I thought, well, how does one answer that? right it's like humanity or as the audience you've been pulled and pulled and pulled right to the, the top of the mountain and where do you go from there right um <clears throat> is it just going to be a helpless tumble all the way down the other side um leaving you you know a pile of bones in the valley uh, beyond or um is there enough value in the catharsis that that uh, it's as if the 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 mountaintop no longer becomes a mountaintop. It, it's it's leveled, and you can proceed onwards. So <clears throat> I had to think of how I could create something, some event that was going to um, return us to that human level. And what I came up with was was the the salvation of the two dogs, because the dogs are also rep the representative of innocence, right? They are, um, they are simply uh, beasts. Uh, they're animals that are accompanying through, you know, their own loyalty, uh, all these people who are going through horrible things. And, and yeah, even when they fight, they're not, they're fighting to defend um, their loved ones. So there's an innocence to dogs, right? There's an innocence to, 
pets to domestic animals. Um, that I think is is immediately recognizable for any reader, any human being. So, um, so in representing that, then saving them, drawing them back from the brink of death, um, then becomes very symbolically meaningful um, for 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 the readers. Um, hopefully, that's the intention, anyways. And so I realized that this was also an expression of something else where the higher and the bigger and the grander the tragedy, um, the most effective answer to it is the smallest gesture of humanity you can come up with. And so that's, that's, that's how it balances. It may not make sense, but it actually balances because it brings it down to that human level. So it's all the way down to Mapple walking away, then pausing in his steps and turning around and say, well, hey, wait a minute, right? I can do something about this. And um, he does so. And oh. that is a gesture to answer all the rest. Everything that you've come up, you've read up to that point. It's that gesture of saving these two innocent creatures that is an answer to all the grief and the tragedy uh, preceding it. And I didn't know if it was going to work. Uh, I still don't know how well it works. Um, but I decided that I was going to follow that general rule for the rest of the series. Um, that no matter what happens, um, everything is drawn back to that human level, that that single human gesture. Um, and that's sort of that's sort of one of the the un unwritten rules that, that I decided to to adhere to for the, for most of the rest of the books. I won't say all of them because you haven't got to the tenth novel yet, but. I think for me, it really stuck um, and it, it works really well. Good. Good. Um, Justin, I think this next question was actually yours. I don't remember writing this. You don't? No. I don't remember writing it either. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> we were curious if if any of the characters uh, were based on people you met in real life or you know. Um, that house gates. No, I mean, characters are, are composites, right? They're, um, you know, and for whatever uh, among your audience, um, whatever beginning writers you have amongst your audience, um, it's one of the things I, I've, I've said before, I will say again, but um, one of the things that, that can quite often um, undermine the confidence of, a, of an artist, of a writer, or any kind of artist, is a sense that you haven't you haven't experienced enough in your life um, to be able to write with any kind of authenticity about you know whatever things your imagination conjures up. And I would counter by saying, um, if you've reached adulthood, uh, everything you need you've already experienced, um, and that's what you can draw upon. Um, so, in other words, if you think of <clears throat> The thing we all share or most of us share is some form of family dynamic um and so we're 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 experiencing from from very beginning um that engagement with with other identities with people with their own thoughts and their own feelings and all the rest um and these are kind of the lessons of life and then you go to school and you experience that on a slightly larger scale um 
And, you know, at that age, we're all sponges. So we absorb all this stuff um, for good and for ill. So by the time you've reached, you know, 18, 19, um, you may not feel it, but you've actually got, uh, you've got the full package. Um, and so then it's simply a question of, uh, when I'm going to create a character, um, what parts of my experience up to that point, uh, can I draw upon? Uh, and it could be the way somebody speaks. Um, it could be the way you've had an art, an argument with somebody where, you know, they've, they've avoided every, every single question you've asked, you know, and, and slipped around, or you've watched a news report and you're listening to a, a politician on television, um, evading every answer, you know, evading every question. Um, so you get to observe all this stuff. And, um, so when you're creating a character and you're, you're, you're populating the flesh, uh, and skin of that character, uh, those composites from the real world reassemble themselves um, and they're shaped by your thoughts on, okay, where did this character come from? What's their life experience? How old are they? Um, and all these things, which then sort of, if you will, close doors of possibility for that character. And, um, and then whatever's left is, yeah, what, what your imagination and your memory can conjure up of overheard conversations, of, of scenes in film and television, of characters, characters you liked, characters you didn't like. Um, all of them uh, just sort of, they will form themselves uh, as you write. And um, as long as you're confident with it, um, it tends to it tends to sort itself out. So I can tell you that uh, by the time you get to House of Chains, there are whole snippets of dialogue exchanges between two characters whom I think you've already met, or at least one of them you've already met, that are almost verbatim conversations and exchanges I've had with my wife. So, you know, it just, they just show up, right? And they're, they're, they're there for comedic effect, and I'm having fun writing it, and um, it's just, that's how it plays out. But other times it can just be, um other aspects of of people you know and as long as you know if you don't try to pull somebody across um with too much accuracy um right you, you pick and choose um the things you're going to do i mean I, I think i've i've read books and i've certainly seen films and television stories that relate um the story of a writer from a small town who's made it big in New York or whatever. Uh, and when that book then ends up showing up in the local bookstore in the small town, people pick it up because they're all excited because, you know, this person from their town just made it famous and they start seeing themselves in the book everywhere, right? Everybody in town is actually in the book in some form or another. And it's probably, at least in most of these films, it's not well disguised either. Um, it, it's a cliche in terms of the storytelling, but quite often first novels are really built that way. They're built on, on real life experiences. Um, 
Fortunately, with fantasy, you, you've stepped far enough away from our world that you can easily disguise um, all of those those personal experiences. But for contemporary fiction, quite often, yeah, it can lead to lawsuits. So, I'm almost a little afraid to ask my next question then, but <laughs> uh, how, how did you create such an unlikable character in High Fist Pormqual? Because I, I don't think I've hated a character so much in a really long time. <laughs> He was very oh, wow. about that. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, you create them because if you read histories, you will discover that there, there are you know, multiple examples of, um, of leaders who are way beyond their, their level of competency um, and, and therefore sort of making decisions that are completely disastrous uh, in, in, in hindsight. Um, plenty of characters like that. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the late campaigns in, in the Western Roman Empire dealing with um, uh, the barbarian invasions, quote-unquote, um, led to uh, such horrible effects that you know, it brought down the entire Western Empire. And that's just because of a couple of assholes, you know, and in, in, in middling positions. Um, now, the example, I mean, basically, the deal was the Goths were pushing on the border and they were raiding because they're hungry. Uh, they're being they're being pushed by by the Huns. And so they're, they're looking at the Roman Empire as salvation, they're looking at as safety. And so they work out a deal. Um, they'll protect the border. Let us into the Roman Empire. We'll protect the border, um, the Danube. And um, and the Romans, because they basically can't say no, they say, yeah, absolutely. Okay, this is great. Um, come on in. Um, and there'll be an eventual promise of uh, citizenship and all the rest. Uh, you settle this border, border and and police it and make sure that the enemy stays away. Sounds like a pretty good deal on both sides, right? So what happens, right? The bunch of local magistrates and, and middling military Romans, corrupt beyond all belief, um, basically either steal the food that's supposed to be supplied to these people um, or try to extort as much money as they can out of the Goths uh, in exchange for that food that they're supposed to be getting. Um, which triggers rage in the Goths. And so they just, they fire it up and they march south and they end up, you know, Alaric sacks Rome. <laughs> All because of an idiot on the border, a corrupt Roman idiot. So these examples are throughout history, throughout history. And even if you look at the, um, the British Empire's expansion, um, you'll find examples everywhere everywhere so porn qual is is nothing nothing special in that respect um his kind his kind have people uh real history uh, since day one i just I, I, the things he did i just couldn't believe it it was just so frustrating <laughs> to me uh, mm -hmm. but yeah he was very frustrated in that episode yeah very frustrated yeah. Um, 
when you started writing these books, did you know it was going to be 10 books or did you, you got through a yeah. or like, no, no, I, yeah, I knew it was 10. Yeah. Cause, um, even when I went back to revise gardens of the moon, what I thought was sort of my final shot at getting it published. So eight years after you know, I was living in the UK, I knew I had the 10 books, I had the 10 titles. Um, I knew where the final scenes were going to take me. Um, and so on the revision, I, I put in what I needed to, at least I, I thought at the time, so that Gardens of the Moon would be consistent. Um, in some respects, it still isn't, um, but it's consistent enough. So the, the story has begun um, in Gardens of the Moon. Uh, I believe in Gardens of the Moon, you get first mention of the crippled god. I think so. So it gives you an idea. Yeah. 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 Um, Very briefly. I think so. Yeah. So, yeah, 10 books. I'm always curious to hear about, you know, an author's journey through their their process and what that's like. Um, uh, which kind of leads me to another question is, how often do you think about this world that you've created? Is it daily? Um, I mean, did you expect the success that you've had? Uh, and uh, along with that, uh, I mean, you're here talking to us today. What is it like knowing that there's people like Justin and I, many others out there, you know, creating content that are dedicated to discussing what you've created? Uh, well, uh, I have immense gratitude and, and a lot of um, kind of astonishment. Uh, it took a uh, it took a long time, at least to my sensibility, um, for this this series to uh, gain traction. Um, I remember writing the Crippled God and and signing off on on the final edited manuscript. Um, and personally, I was exhausted. You know, it was it was eleven years, um, ten books. 10 big books, uh, three and a, a little over almost three and a quarter million words in, in 11 years. Um, in fact, the longest of, of the books is the one you're reading right now in terms of writing time, because it involved, I moved from the UK back to Canada, um, in the midst of that, which uh, delayed things a little bit. Um, and of course, YouTube was not a thing, you know, um, online discourse was not a thing um, when this stuff was was finding its way out. Um, and there was one particular site called, um, well, as an empire.com, I think. Anyways, it was a, a small, a relatively small at the time fan site. And as each novel came out and was published, um, the general consensus would be, generally was uh people didn't like it and so that was kind of the impact i was i was receiving as i was writing this thing was that they didn't like it but then they'd read it a second time and it would become their favorite book and so it was this weird delayed effect um for each book that came out but you carry you know you don't realize it at the time but you're carrying that weight um that weight of expectation um all of those sort of wounds of disappointment that, that you know uh, are being delivered on you by by fans 
and then it's all kind of done and you know you step out from under that that weight um and you're exhausted and you don't know what next etc etc um and then the book's released and there's some reviews it, it does well enough i mean the, the thing i always only wanted um was to be able to write full time that was my dream it, it didn't matter you know uh, anything else didn't matter i wasn't looking for fame and fortune i just wanted to write full time because i'd done so many other crappy jobs that i just you know you do these things and you realize this is time lost to my writing uh to writing and i've never given it back so i i had that kind of drive that once i was given permission to write full time i was just going to run with it um and the publishers i mean they committed they committed to all nine books after burdens of the moon so i had at least 10 years of um potentially freedom if you will i didn't realize at the time that publishers can can cancel the contracts at any time if they want so i just thought i was locked in <clears throat> um so i just wrote and wrote and wrote wrote um but it's taken even you know in that respect it's it's only been in the last maybe around the time of covid starting up or just before that uh is where it seems to have found a uh, second wind um and booktube has certainly made a big difference and, and people like you coming on board and 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 reading these you know for the first time given that it was you know originally published in the year 2000 um you know we're, we're 23 years down the road right that's just that's crazy <laughs> it blows my mind um but it, it it's yeah it um it it's a much a long delayed reward put it that way part of me wonders what took us so long to start reading this um but it, it there's a lot out there you know there's there's only so much reading time in your lives uh there's a lot of good stuff out there so well i remember uh this must have been i don't know maybe eight years ago <clears throat> i was in a like a half price books and I saw Gardens of the Moon in hardcover, and it, you know, it was behind a case. I understand why it was behind a case now. Um, and I remember looking at the artwork, and I'm like, "This is this looks really cool. I should pick up on this." And then it wasn't until you're like, "Dude, we should read the series," and I'm like, "Oh, I've seen this book before." Um, you never told me that. That's yeah, right here. yeah. I, which which cover was it? It was the the old school one with. I'm not sure who exactly the characters are. But I'm assuming Gano's on a horse, and then Lacine, um, kind of. Oh, the, sorry, and sorry, the, the old tour, the old tour edition. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You liked that cover, did you? Yes, I did. Yes, I. Um, I don't know. I geek out about fantasy books and their their artwork. So. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Do you want me to read this next one? Sure. We got a few, couple questions left okay uh felison is a very complex and fascinating character and so far in the series she's probably our favorite i think we would mutually agree on that was she difficult to write with her age and the experiences mm -hmm. that she had throughout dead house gates i know you touched a little yeah. bit on this but 
I was wondering if you could dive a bit deeper. Yeah, um, it is challenging um, to take a traumatized character and 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 to basically occupy uh, that mindset um, to get as close as possible um, to experiencing what she's experiencing. Um, I suppose in some respects, uh, I did have some real world corollary or examples. Um, my father, uh, actually when I was even in high school, he went back to school, long story, but, um, he became a psychologist. And, um, so even in high school, I was around the house, there were a lot of psychology textbooks floating around and as an insatiable reader and we were dirt poor so i wasn't able to buy books um i read everything i could get my hands on so i read a lot about uh, psychology uh, human behavior and then i was a, a counselor with the ymca and uh one of the programs i was in um was working with um what did they call it at the time? Um, children from broken homes or something along those lines. And they had some, you know, uh, non-politically correct term now. Um, but anyways, whatever it was, they, these were uh, children who were struggling, um, having, having had sort of those most fundamental betrayals that one, you know, having grown up with, uh, loving parents would assume to be always there and for some children they aren't and so these 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 kids were they're having a tough time and the older they got the angrier they got and you know with good reason so as a counselor you know you're every week you're dealing with seven or eight of them and uh, they don't know each other uh, they've been brought in from all over the city um and so those dynamics are having to work out and you're the authority figure and they are pretty resistant to authority figures for very good reasons. Um, and so you have to kind of manage your way through that kind of stuff. So I did have, I did have some experience, um, dealing with, uh, children who would, who have experienced what it would now be called PTSD of some form or another maybe it isn't called that anymore I, I don't know what the whatever you want to call it now um trauma and so in creating felicin um as soon as the initial scenario was put in place i realized that this is a character um, whose point of view i need because if i were to write only from external points of view regarding that character um it would be, it's hard to explain, it would be fundamentally unfair to that character. And it would invite judgment. And I did not want judgment. Uh, I mean, judgment will exist in the reader, but it sure as hell shouldn't exist in the writer. So um, I had to write from that point of view. And then it's simply a question of, okay, well, if one is wounded to that, to that degree, um, there was a lot that they do 
that uh, reopens wounds over and over again because it's it's a it's a pattern of behavior it's a pattern of response um it's a pattern of um, reaction so once you're in that place yes it's it's a claustrophobic place um and it's a hurting place and so um one has to uh sort of be true to it but but just lay it out there and um it is what it is is you know the common uh phrase that's being used these days um and that that was the way to write her um and i mean i i wrote her with with deep deep compassion deep love um but understanding that she was going to be um lashing out because that was what she that was the only thing she had to left to her um with the initial betrayal of, of her sister that was going to be a wound that that she was going to have a lot of difficulty dealing with um sorry my phone's hold on a sec no worries i gotta take this yeah hold on no worries sure Giving us a lot more time than I thought he would. Yeah, that's some down. No. That's amazing. Oh, this is so funny. Sorry. I'm back. No worries. Uh Justin has just run into the bathroom here quick, but all right, okay. Um I think I can well, if you don't mind waiting a moment. No, I don't mind. This, this is unreal for us. Uh, so appreciative. Um, I, I don't know. I've been smiling the whole time. So it's, <laughs> well, it's been fun. It's been fun. We've, uh, uh, I think lately we've, we've really kind of found our footing with things, but, mm -hmm. um, we've got to work with, Maura, I know she's talked to you from uh, Smiley's podcast. Uh, All right, yeah. We've worked with her and Lee a couple times, and, and they're a ton of fun. Probably our our best podcasting friends that we have. Um, we have plans to work with DLC Book Club. Oh man, they are fun, aren't they? I haven't watched much of their stuff. I've got oh. First Gardens video. Yeah, um, they're a blast. Yeah. So we're, once we finish the, the first sub book of Memories of Ice, we're going to work with them. Uh, we've, uh, when we record next Saturday, we're going to record our first episode for Memories of Ice. And we've got a, a gentleman from another, not, not it's more of a Wheel of Time podcast, but they mm -hmm. do kind of fantasy stuff. But we're going to talk with him. And so I, I've, I've, in my mind, I equate it to uh, different breweries. Like you find a brewery that you like, but then when they work with another one and collaborate and make a beer together, it's just better. And that that's kind of <laughs> what I'm feeling like right now. So fair enough. Things have been pretty exciting for us. Cool. Uh we got to join 10 very big books for their live stream that they did a couple oh, right. of weeks. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. Um sorry about that. No worries. Sorry. Um, anyways, I, yeah, I probably covered everything I needed to about Phyllis and, but sure. 
Yes, I appreciate that that uh, <clears throat> that answer. Very insightful. Um, memories of ice. Just uh, what are we? What kind of things can we expect of that? That's kind of a broad question, but and I don't know how much you want to speak to it or give it. Um, but this is the one where you know having having decided that tragedy was going to play a huge role. Um, this is the one that I think in many respects, uh, will focus that, that process. So I'm warning you now, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's part of a narrative. So, um, uh, I don't kill everyone. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I guess to bake on that, on that note, uh, is memories of ice, your favorite book that you've written in the series or. Do you have a favorite? No, no. Um, no, I, I have two favorites. Um, I guess Toll the Hounds is probably uh, the top one uh, for me. Um, I loved writing Midnight Tides a lot. Um, well, I mean, I like writing, period. So, you know, if, if I... If I'm doing something that I, I'm that I don't like, then I'll uh, I won't I'll just delete it. You know. Um, <laughs> sure. So the opening of of um, House of Chains, I had a lot of fun writing. Um, like I say, Midnight Tides kind of wrote itself. It was kind of quite effortless in some some peculiar ways. Um, but Toll the Hounds and without question the crippled god but the crippled god is the second half of huge novel right um dust of dreams is the first half and the crippled god is the second half and the dust of dreams is the only cliffhanger uh book of the entire 10 books so. well at least once we get there we won't have to wait long on that cliffhanger so <laughs> no no it's all out there yeah imagine the original readers they waited a year if not longer two years pretty close to makes sense yeah so we uh i made a very bad decision and <laughs> uh i decided to bet mr derrick here that uh shaik doesn't come back and so when we're done here uh i will be getting a pie in the face <laughs> yeah. actually two pies really the book of drajana was not real I thought that uh, I thought that it was it was a, a fake, like a oh, a ploy by Mebra to get get Kalam to unveil Shaik. So right, I have been I have been proven wrong twice. So he gets to pie me in the face. Looking forward to it. We'll get it on video too. Wow. Well, I guess the lessons learned, right? Don't uh -huh. don't make these bets. Yeah, that is, that's literally what I was just telling them before we got on. I'm like, I'm not making any more bets. No, no. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I really did make a point of being as unpredictable as I possibly could. So that's the only thing I can I can warn you of uh, fairly that um, I try to surprise you. And we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, I'm just not going to take any more bets. No, I'm good. No, good idea. <clears throat> um this is not related to the books but 
Um, are you a hockey fan? Um, I grew up a hockey fan. Absolutely. Curiously, I'm less so now than I used to be. Okay. Uh, I, I'm not as big a fan of the modern game as, as I was of earlier versions, earlier renditions. Um, and I, you know, if you become fans of a particular team, um, that can wear and tear on you. Um, I'm assuming you guys are Minnesota wild. Uh, I was Winnipeg Jets and Edmonton Oilers. Um, I was a Jets fan when the Oilers were winning the cup all the time, um, which really sucked. Uh, and then I was an Oilers fan when they were losing all the time. So it was like before the Winnipeg team returned. And now, uh, yeah, the, the modern Jets, um, it looks like that window's closed, I think, in many respects um, for the next few years. I think losing Bufflin was just uh, disastrous for the team. So it's kind of an odd situation. Yeah. I was just curious, and I was I was curious if you had any thoughts as to who the next Canadian team to win the cup might be. Oh, I don't think I don't think we'll ever see a Canadian team win the cup again. <laughs> no, I think there's a lot of financial pressures pushing in the other direction. Um, but I'm actually and. So I'm, I'm sort of stuck with, um, I watch baseball now and obviously I'm a Jays fan. Um, though I do like the Minnesota twins. I have to admit they're a good team. I like, I like watching them. Um, but again, yeah, it, it, you end up picking the wrong teams to cheer for and, and <laughs> you're just left wanting forever. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I know all about that. Yeah. Yeah. Where is he out? Um, I guess our last question and, and this, if you feel like it's kind of putting you on the spot, we can always edit this out. But uh, at a point in time when we finished Memories of Ice, do you feel that we could wrangle you back to pick your brain some more? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, yeah. I think that's exhausted all of our questions. Unless I, I don't know if you had any questions um, or Justin, if you had uh. any questions. No, no, I, I'm I'm good. Um, I've had a really busy summer, so I've not had a chance to watch nearly as much stuff as I've wanted to uh, on YouTube. So I volunteered on an archaeology dig. Um, I've got a whole bunch of things lined up now that, that are taking me away even from the writing. So um, it's just been a really busy summer. So I feel that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been busier than most. I would say. Yeah. For a lot. So, gotcha. Well, uh, Mr. Erickson, I really appreciate your time and you coming on. It was fun. Honoring yeah. us with your, your knowledge. And yes, it was great. Amazing. Just way, way more than I could have imagined and exceeded every expectation that I had. So, thank you very much. Well, uh, it, it, I should warn you for the future. I, I love talking writing. So, um, you know, this is this is another opportunity to talk just writing, and I love it. We like hearing it. Yeah, so. definitely. <laughs> Alrighty. All right. Well, I bid you adieu and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Take care. Take, Take care. care.